Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Greetings, comrades. This is Alice. Comrade Christops is still struggling with illness, and currently, due to massive coughing, he's completely lost his voice. So today, I think, is a great Sunday for a little magazine reading with Alice, wouldn't you say? We will be covering a Soviet ladies' magazine, all from the 1960s. We've acquired all the journals from that year and meticulously went through them, taking everything that we could find to be interesting. This magazine was a monthly journal, created and edited by the Central Committee of the Latvian Communist Party, was printed in large batches for the first time, 130,000 per number. Costing two rubles, it was quite expensive. For example, the collection of Isaac Asimov's short stories, I, Robot, would set you back only one ruble, so would many other books, so this magazine actually had some quality standards. It was defined as a socially political an arts-themed, illustrated magazine. In effect, it was a variety and human interest magazine for a Soviet woman. And as such, unlike the Star magazine, which Kristaps often uses to answer questions sent to Uncle Joe, this one was more subtle in its propaganda. It contained stories about life from the Soviet women, obviously portraying the glorious workers' paradise in the best way possible, also had advice on how to raise kids in socialistic spirit, various short stories and novels, printed in parts throughout the numbers, poems, stories about how miserable life was in the times of independent Latvia, tales about lives of other women in other countries, obviously how they suffer in capitalistic countries and how they're building the bright future and the socialist ones, stories about how American women are protesting against the evil American soldiers, literally drinking the blood of African children, pictures giving advice on latest fashions, recipes for various occasions, practical advice around the house and the workplace, and answers to various reader questions. In short, it was a smorgasbord of whatever the Communist Party thought Soviet women would need in their lives. Sometimes, just sometimes, some very interesting articles would pop up which can be now used to show the zeitgeist of the Soviet family life. This episode is about those articles. Part of the magazine was always dedicated 
on making the best out of what little you have in your Soviet life. An article by architect El Naate, for example, informs the young couple on what they should do after just getting married and having moved in their brand new room in the communal flat that's given to them by the caring government. Wedding march, flowers, greetings, gifts. We begin a new life in our living space that consists of a single 18 square meter large room. And dowry, yes. Whatever everyone gets is their dowry. But what should we do if one or the other of the newlyweds has acquired old furniture that has served its time as their dowry? Young families aren't prosperous enough to completely refuse such furniture and buy everything anew. That is why we should start changing and fixing things up, because we want to live in a contemporary modern place. First thing that we should do is to abandon the bed, because it's too, you can say, intimate of a piece of furniture to be located in the room that we live in, we work in, that we take guests in. Instead, we will take the mattress from the bed and build a couch from it. The easiest way to do it is to nail the legs to the mattress and cover it with a clean blanket, preferably with the classical Latvian ethnographical pattern. If you put a decorative pillow on it, it'll look even better. End quote. On the same page with this article, by the way, is a very typical Soviet advertisement, calling for Women who work in kolkhoz. Let's put all our efforts to complete the seven-year plan early. And another article where Jan Sperzing, M.D., explains to readers the differences between hysteria and neurasthenia and talks about their symptoms. Obviously, this is also very important to know when you're a newlywed and have decided to ditch your bed for a crappy DIY couch and your other half is looking at you strangely. Just remember about the seven-year plan, darling. And now, letters with the Soviet woman. And here's a letter from the reader. In the response to the magazine's contest about the best stories about Soviet everyday life. Reminder that this is 1960s, and this contains a lot of propaganda still. You can probably gain better insights about the real life here from other official reports in the era. Life in our household. Our family just celebrated its seventh wedding anniversary. Already in the first year of our marriage we had a son, and now little Arnis has a four-year-old sister as well. Our family has no grandparents nor any other person that could help around the house, so I don't even know how I'd be able to do everything if my husband wouldn't be as nice and helpful as he is. We both work in the same factory, in the same shift. While we're at work, a relative of ours looks after the kids. The best and most productive days are those when we have morning shifts. Straight after the work, either I or my husband go shopping while the other person is running back home to clean up and start making dinner. Cooking dinner for the whole family takes about two hours in our home because we also need to cook for the following day. After eating, the so-called children hours begin for us. One of us either goes for a walk with them, or reads some stories to them, or teaches them to read or write, or makes something out of plasticine with them. The other one gets to do other house chores at the time, or can read some book or the latest magazines. We're used to putting kids to sleep at a certain time, 9 p.m., so we have the evening for ourselves. 
Of course, going to the cinema or the theater is difficult for us, but we've solved this problem somewhat. We bought a TV set on installments. Which was pretty rare in the Soviet era, by the way, although this was possible. And you had to wait in line, so this family must be pretty lucky. Also, in 1960s, the TV definitely had a small screen and was black and white only. If we work in the evening shift, then the rhythm of our life changes a bit. We get up as usual in 6.30, these kids get up at 7, as they're used to, while I and the kids clean up and order our rooms. Everyone has to make their own bed. My husband makes breakfast. After the breakfast, I usually go shopping while the hubby takes care of the children. When I arrive home, I put soup to boil and do some crafts like knitting or sewing or crocheting. Husband does some other chores around the house or goes to the factory as he has a lot of social duties, being one of the factory's party committee members. The fact that we have central heating and gas in our home helps a lot. Spending the mornings in home, there aren't a lot of time left for books, sadly. The kids have a lot of questions, and they always want to do all kids' kind of stuff, so we spend a lot of our free time with them. I think that in the future our family will be able to buy a washing machine and a refrigerator, so we'll be able to save even more time on chores around the house. Now, dear listeners, the biggest lie of the whole letter comes in. Everything else was pretty believable, but the following is pretty crazy. Overall, we make about 2,000 rubles per month. We spend around a thousand to a thousand two hundred on food. Our meals usually consist of root and meat soups. Besides that, everyone in our family likes various porridges and fish. The meals are cheaper and easier to make than substantial main meat courses. Every month we can afford about three hundred to four hundred rubles for bigger purchases. If they'd be making two thousand rubles per month, they would have no need to buy a TV on installments. Also, they could probably get a babysitter and would be considered very rich. The realistic family income for this family is the mentioned 300 to 400 rubles per month, and that, if they're lucky, seeing as 120 rubles per month was a normal salary, 200 rubles per month was very good. But honestly, this is pretty much the only completely unbelievable thing in the whole letter. The rest seems pretty legit. Carrying on. We, the working women could be helped a lot if you could get more semi-finished products in the store, like frozen foods and the like, and if those pre-made things that you can get would be a better quality. Besides, the government should really put in some more thought in producing more and various modern household things for the kitchen. Also, reducing workdays for women with kids would be very neat and necessary. And now, cooking with a Soviet woman. In the same number with everyday life letter, there are also some interesting recipes that you can make from various animal organs. There's the average normal stuff like liver, tongue, and heart. But there's also some weirder stuff like kidneys and brains. So much for people making 2,000 rubles for household per month. Here's two Soviet sub-product recipes if you ever want to try them out on your own. Kidneys in cucumber sauce. When cooking kidneys, it's important to remember that you must first cut them vertically and cut out the urinary tracts. Then you should rinse them with cold water and hold them for 15 to 20 minutes on water that has had some vinegar added to it. 
If you're using kidneys from older animals, then you should hold them in such water for about an hour and a half to two hours, and then boil them in fresh water. For this recipe per portion, you will need 150 grams of beef kidneys, 15 grams of fat, 25 grams of carrots, 25 grams of onions, 10 grams of parsley, 20 grams of tomato paste, and 50 grams of pickled cucumbers, and 5 grams of wheat flour. First, you boil the kidneys and then cut them in elongated strips and bake them in fat. Then you chop all the fresh vegetables and cook them in fat separately, adding the tomato paste late in the process. After, cut the pickles and put them in some bouillon and add the wheat flour, which should be preheated. How do you heat up flour? Personally, I don't know. Pour the wheat flour in the pan with the vegetables and boil the whole thing. Put the baked kidneys inside the sauce that you've just made and saute the whole thing for 10 to 15 minutes. Serve with boiled potatoes. Yum! How about some Soviet brain pudding instead? Before cooking brains, either hold them in cold water for two hours or for a moment put them in boiling salt and vinegar water. One tablespoon salt, two tablespoons vinegar on a liter of water. For this meal, per portion, you'll need 100 grams of brains, 15 grams of butter or margarine, onions, 10 grams, half an egg, 15 grams of breadcrumbs, and a tablespoon of milk and some pepper. First, boil the brains for 15 minutes in salt and vinegar water. Then remove the membrane, put them in a bowl and mix them up with a wooden spoon, adding chopped baked egg yolk, breadcrumbs, salt, pepper, and milk. After this, add mixed egg white to the whole thing. Then, Put the spiced brain mix in a baking tray and bake it in the oven for 25 to 30 minutes. After it's done, sprinkle with breadcrumbs and serve with molten butter, boiled potatoes and fresh vegetable salad. But, of course, not all recipes mentioned there were as intense as brains and kidneys and stuff like that. Of course, they had some wonderful desserts such as red currant and oat-like soup. Per person, 30 grams of red currant juice, 300 grams of water, 40 grams of sugar, 4 grams of potato starch, but you Americans probably use cornstarch, and 35 grams of oat flakes. You add those things together, boil them. Then, on a pan, heat up oil flakes with sugar and caramelize them. Put them in the bowl, pour the boiled red currant soup over it, and dessert is ready to serve. This is pretty fancy. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. An irreplaceable part of these magazines were also small interviews with women who received various medals mostly Leninsk orders for their work efforts. Some of those stories are quite unusual by today's standards, yet they show the gender equality of USSR, as uncaring, cold, and complete as it often was. Here's a story from Valentina Damme, driver of the 18th Auto Transportation Office. Usually heavy trucks are driven by men, and they tend to say it's a difficult job. And she responds, Yes, it's not for the easy ones. If the car refuses to follow your commands in the middle of the road, it's the worst. Of course it's uncomfortable in the winter too, it takes a while to get used to the cold. But there are benefits as well, you're always in fresh air, always en route. How long ago did you get your driver's license? It was in the May of 1940. I've driven through Russia, Estonia, now Riga as well. As we were moved here in 1946 with my husband, we both work here. He's a mechanic, I'm a driver. Are you happy with your award? Oh, very. When I found out, I didn't know what to do from joy. It's been a good year in general. We also got a new apartment as well. I'd invite you to visit, but the house doesn't have a number, so we don't have an address yet. When I'll get one, I'll let you know. Yay. Here's another one. Milda Bitanietze, director of the third bread combinate. During the first five-year plan, and through the Great Fatherland War, you worked in Leningrad. Now you've moved back to Riga? Yes, I arrived in Riga together with the army. My task was to organize the restoration and repair of the bread bakeries. I didn't even want to hear about becoming a director, but then I looked around and saw that the men in Riga were arrogant, thinking that only they know how to break bread. Thus, I decided to show them what women can do, not only as bakers, but also as executives and leading a whole baking company. We went to the party committee and said, I'll do what you want and become a director. And so, until this day. But look at how many women these days are in our bread factories. More than men. And the last interview. With Alexandra Tsibule, pilot and helmswoman of the Latvian Separate Aviation Group of the Soviet Civil Aviation Fleet. Can women become pilots even now, after the war? This definitely interests quite a few of our young readers. No, not anymore. In flight schools, just like in Navy schools, women are no longer accepted. So you got lucky. Both yes and no. Yes, because I love my job and the fact that I could help the Soviet motherland with it during the Great War. No, because my job, by its difficulties, both physically and mentally, and by how tiring it is, really, it's not meant for a woman. I could only do it with honor because of my great health. A girl from the countryside had written a letter to me asking how to become a pilot. I responded to her as if she was my own daughter. Don't rush for the romance of the skies. Let your brothers and grooms fly. But you find a job for your woman's strength and women's softness and do that job instead. 
We don't have small, unimportant jobs in our countries anyways. And to be able to live in our country and do any job whatsoever, that is the greatest happiness. If the motherland will need you, she will call. But right now, there is no need for you to hurt yourselves by doing something as difficult and harmful as flying. Weirdly enough, sometimes the Soviet woman magazine also published public complaints. After all, Stalinist era was over, and this was the beginning of Khrushchev's period, and people were feeling out what they could and couldn't do, and now obviously nobody is criticizing the party. But in purely socio-economic terms, saying that workers weren't satisfied with what was going on in one kolkhoz or another was sort of accepted. Within reason, of course. Here's an excerpt from an article. There is a basis for being dissatisfied. Women were complaining about their quality of life and work in the Holhos Red October. Quote, the rich Holhos, which is, according to many indicators, the first place in our republic, the workers don't know holidays or paid vacations. Correctly, the most angered by this are the women responsible for the farm animals because they have to do their job every day, winter or summer. Those people who work on the fields with the produce have it easier. They can have some time off in rainy days, in winter days, where they can do the house chores that are waiting for them, or spend some hours with their children. That's stolen time. That is also not proper rest, which these women desire so much and have honestly earned. It seems that the executive council at the Kolkhoz should really think about this situation. Paid vacations, unofficial days off, have been given to their workers already by many kolkhoz, and a lot of them are economically much weaker than our Red October. The fact that there is very little thought about workers here, and even less about the younger generation, which, after a few years, will take over the production and work in the kolkhoz, is also evidenced by the fact that in the whole large kolkhoz territory, there is no kindergarten. For a long while already, mothers feel the necessity of establishing one, but the men just sit and twiddle their thumbs and can't decide whether or not having a kindergarten will have any benefits or not. Women are promptly outraged by this. In other kolkhoz, kids are taken care of. They are taken to their daycare by a car, but in the rich red October of ours, even getting horses with which the kids can at least be taken to the nearby town is a problem. Over there... Kids are studying, playing, growing to accept certain discipline, but here growing among calves and piglets becomes sickly, their childhood is monotone, they lack knowledge about the world. But where could the animal handlers leave their kids if there is no place to leave them? And so they must be taken to the barn. A huge work that women do in the fields and barns of Kolkhoz naturally leads to the question about how to do their home chores easier, faster, and with less effort so that they could have some time off for reading, crafts, going to the cinema or theater. The women of Red October have decided that it would be much easier for them if Kolkhoz would build a common laundry room and a sauna. Then dirty clothing could be gathered by brigades and then they could be delivered back straight to people's homes. Currently, it's just a fantasy, because such public buildings don't have any allocated spots, even in the prospective future plans. 
A cafeteria would be nice, too. After all, not every woman in the kolkhoz can run home to take care of her personal cow during the lunch break. And also, couldn't they bring dinner to the field from such a cafeteria, to places where a large quantity of people are working outside? A lot of the workers wouldn't mind going to the kolkhoz center for a meal, too. But for now, this is also just a dream. In reality, nobody in the kolkhoz council has thought about these issues. Just like holidays, paid vacations, saunas, laundry rooms, and kindergartens. The women of Red October have a good, valid reason to be dissatisfied. Yeah. Sometimes the problems that were looked at in the magazine were also very human ones. And some would even understandable, albeit with different nuances. For one, if today we were worried about what kids write in social media... Back in 1960s, there, for example, is a letter from a concerned mother that says, My daughter, Zintra, used to show me all the personal letters that she received. Now that she's turned 17, she no longer wants to do that. She said to me openly that her letters are her own business and that she will be reading them alone from now on. What should I do? How do I solve this crisis? And to her distressed letter, she's given a fair, humane answer, fair, humane answer that yes, indeed, people have rights to privacy, but that everyone should be more tolerant to each other, and that there was no need for harshness in this family conversation. How nice. Another letter with these everyday family problems comes in from one Liepinha, who complains that her husband is too strict to their children. Apparently, they have two kids. Son is eight and daughter is five. They have very strict schedules about when to eat, when to study, and when to go to sleep. And Miss Liepinha is complaining to the Soviet woman about the fact that her beloved husband isn't allowing the kids to stay up late, even in New Year's or in other important celebrations. She's concerned that he's too obsessed with everyday regime to actually think about that sometimes breaching it would be beneficial, and remembers that her own happiest childhood moments were when she could stay up late and have some actual fun. The magazine is again actually caring and understanding, and although it states that proper regime and discipline are two cornerstones of the Soviet education system, and that they guarantee that the kids will grow up healthy and with quote-unquote proper moral standing, they should, however, be allowed to stay up in important dates like New Year's or watching the fireworks in the annual anniversary of the October Revolution, because a true Soviet woman should know that these ideologically pure celebrations have nothing to do with spoiling the child and instead will ensure the proper growth of the new Soviet man or woman. Another of these humane, encouraging articles encourages older women to go back and finish high school so that they could maybe go to university one day. During World War II, a lot of people's fates ended up in a way that they could not get a proper education. So people over 30 who hadn't finished high school, but often were working, but often were working in even more mechanizing workplaces, were a huge issue in the Soviet Union. One of Kristev's grandmothers only had a 7th grade education because she had to go and work and feed her little siblings after both of her parents died in a bombing raid during the war, for example. 
so encouraging responses to letters by women who simply can't take it up to themselves to go back to school was definitely one of the more positive types of articles that the Latvian Soviet woman printed. They also responded to letters of schoolgirls, especially from the evening after-hour schools, telling them to be more polite and tolerant to their brand-new older classmates who were probably just setting their lives straight after their own youths were destroyed by the war. Those are the weirdnesses of 1960s, as technically everyone's happy about how their lives have improved from the war, and there's no more Stalin and the sinister psychological horror of the USSR, with forced moving to asylums and the like haven't kicked in yet as well. But for everyone, including the mothers and readers of Latvian Soviet women, the war is still living very much in memory. And, um... To finish off today's episode, I'd like to talk about another complaining article from the paper. <clears throat> this one struck me as especially weird, as it touches a subject that was especially unpopular in the Soviet propaganda. It's called Simple Lines, Bright Colors. And it begins, friendly enough, as a story about the latest Soviet designs of lamps, dishes, pans, vases and other everyday objects created by the people's artists, and produced in various factories and state enterprises all over the Latvian SSR. And there are even photographs of all those objects posted on the very next page. But then, the part which explains exactly why Soviet citizens didn't have nice things starts. Quote, you too would probably want to buy some of these new things. Well, it could happen that you might get a chance to do so. Certainly there's a chance. We took photos of these things on the Household Commodity Wholesale Show, where the production side offered their products to the retail organizations and concluded delivery contracts with them. So these and many other things should show up in the stores. The amount of consumer articles in the stores is bound to increase next year. So why are we so cautious about just giving you the possibility that you just might get the chance to buy these? Because the most beautiful and most interesting objects will be produced in such limited quantities that it'll be really up to luck if you'll ever get them. But technically, it could be your lucky day and you could walk into the store when it'll get delivered, say, five of the porcelain tea sets Dinah, meant for the store tough chance. The good stuff was always stolen by the sales folks and those doing the delivery, and either used or sold in the black market. The odds of them actually hitting the shelves were not just low, they were non-existent. But why is this so that there's just not enough of the newest, prettiest, most original porcelain and faience creations of the Soviet retail? Why many of the new beautiful dish sets are produced only in minuscule quantities? Why are there so many excellent samples in artist studios which aren't produced at all? The main reason is that the factories have had a hard time producing new molds, create new forms for these sets, they even have trouble changing the coloring of the existent ones. Especially because the technology in our ceramic factories is old and obsolete, and the factories themselves lack any material or incentives or stimuli that would encourage them to adopt new methods or designs. Our economists haven't figured out how to create such new incentives. Let's hope they find solutions in the new year. In the same vein, we can see the unwillingness to innovate in 
other everyday consumer good producers, and this could be seen in the show. The Lighting Technologies Factory presented three new models of floor lamps, of which 9,000 pieces, 9,000 pieces will be produced in total. And let's hope for some variety of colors there, but there have been no new ceiling or table lamps, and also no sets of lamps that could look good in a room together. Same depressive status seen with the glass tableware production. Same old forms and designs. Same old screechingly eyesore creating bright colors. It seems that the factory board has never even seen the Czech glassware, even thought that they not only should take a careful look at them, but also learn from them. Liepaja linoleum factory had brought new green and gray linoleum samples. But nobody knows why they did so, as there are currently even no plans for the foreseeable future for actually producing this new style linoleum. So do your work, economists. Find the lever that will increase the desire of factories to actually diversify their production and innovate and actually produce the new and beautiful designs of these everyday objects. As it turns out, Propaganda and appealing to their morals isn't enough. End quote. Yeah, I mean, who would have thought that, that economics don't work on moralizing alone and that you need incentives? This article is excellent in the way that it shows exactly how the planned economy just couldn't and didn't function. And we sincerely have to pity the poor Soviet economists who were tasked with basically inventing how to circumvent the very basic laws of economy to make the whole thing work. And that's it for today's show. Thank you for spending this Sunday with me, reading a magazine, having some tea, with lemon perhaps. Hope you like this introduction to the world of real Soviet women. This episode, of course, is experimental. I hope you enjoyed it. Kristaps will publish Stalin as soon as he can speak. So, do свидания, Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. 
The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.